please remain standing out of thanks for God who has spoken to us and is speaking to us now through his living and active word. And you can grab your copy of the Bible and turn to Luke chapter 8. If you don't happen to have a Bible in front of you, it's always useful to have one open and in front of you as we study God's word together. So we would invite you to grab one of the chairback Bibles that should be in front of you and turn to page 867. As this morning, we want to look at Luke chapter 9, verses 37 through 50. And as often happens, if you've read through a gospel before, sometimes it seems as though the gospel author strings together apparently unrelated teachings of Jesus Christ. And in our 14 verses, we are going to look at four different scenes in which Christ is moving, ministering, and teaching And at first glance, it seems like they have no unity. There's no relationship between the two. But as I want us to see today, actually Luke is meant or is meaning to tell us something quite clear in these four scenes. So as we read through them, see if you might happen to see some sort of unifying theme in the text. But let me pray, let me read it now for us. And then I do want to pray that God would once again bless our study of his word and then we'll dive in. So let us hear now as... God speaks to us through his word. On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met Jesus. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. And while he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. But while they were all marveling at everything Jesus was doing, he said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them, so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask Jesus about this saying. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to him, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him. For the one who is not against you is for you. And what do we believe about God's word? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that your word does indeed stand forever. That you even now, as we gather here on this Lord's Day morning, send it into our midst to accomplish your purposes for it. Lord, we pray that those purposes would indeed be the softening of hearts, the conviction of souls, the enlightening of minds, the nourishing of lives pursuing Christ. So help us to hear, we pray, with 
eagerness and gladness as Christ speaks to us. Help us to indeed have a genuine encounter with your son this morning. Help me to preach as you have commanded me to do boldly and clearly as a dying man unto dying people. And help us to hear, O Lord, as this might be our last sermon before you take us home. So let us hear with eager expectation. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, students, I don't know if you have a summer reading list during the next few months that has come from maybe one of your parents or uh, one of your school teachers. I can recall from years long uh, gone by many different reading lists that were assigned to me, and I, I genuinely think the most favorite book I had from a summer reading list was written by a man named Robert Louis Stevenson and his great book, Treasure Island, which you may have heard before, may have read before. It's a great story, of course, of adventure, pirates, and finding long-lost gold. It's a story that sprung forth Stevenson to worldwide fame and acclaim, even international fortune. But by the end of his life, when someone asked him what would be the epitaph, what would be written on his tombstone, this is what he said. Here lies one who meant well, who tried a little and failed much. And kids, I wonder if you know how certain failure is in life. Have we not all lived long enough to know that few things are more prevalent this side of heaven than disappointments? Few things are even more prevalent in Christ's church than the shortcomings of his covenant community. We might even talk at the door later on today and I might find out that you're in here giving church one last chance because the last few years of your life have been so full of disappointment at the hands of Christ's disciples. And so the question that I would want to put before you as we begin our study of this text today is what does Jesus do with the failures of his people? What does Jesus do when his people fall short? Because you might have noticed as we read the text a second ago, there are a couple different themes I think we could point out that are unifying the four scenes in our text But what each scene prominently exposes for us is a failure of God's people, is a shortcoming in the disciples. It's like Luke puts these things together in something of a staccato-like fashion. It's very brief, it's very pointed and full of pithy teaching from Jesus that we might see how he relates to those whom he has chosen, to those whom he has called, and to those whom keep failing in their following After him. And so I think we'll see a few things that we're meant to notice from this text. The first of which is that Christ corrects his disciples' failures. And maybe you notice that even as we were reading. Jesus doesn't shy away from earnest and even forceful correction of his people. And so we always want to have an understanding of Jesus that has a place in our thoughts for this kind of correction from our Lord and Savior. That he will rebuke his people when necessary that he will strongly teach against their false motives. But there is good news in this text, if we have eyes to see, and I hope to bring it out by the end, because lest that correction lead to undue condemnation, I want you to see that Jesus never forsakes his imperfect people. We need to see this morning that Christ's people, from the earliest days of his ministry on, 
have always been marked, in some ways marked in the most common way, by failures. And yet Jesus forsakes not those whom he has chosen and those whom he has called for his glory. So there are four scenes, and I want to point out four failures of the disciples, the first of which is a failure of faith. Look at how Luke introduces the text in verse 37. He says, On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met Jesus. So students, do you remember what happened the day before? Maybe you were in here last week, and Mark Evans was preaching from verses 28 to 36. You might remember that the day before, as likely the night before, Jesus was transfigured on a mountainside, which means James, John, and Peter saw uncovered before them the fullness of Christ's glory and splendor. The Father speaks forth from the cloud of glory and says, listen to my beloved Son. He's speaking with Elijah. He's speaking with Moses about this second exodus to come. It is a literal mountaintop experience. But while all of this splendor was going on at the top of the mountain, at its base there was sorrow in a city. For notice what we're told in verse 38. A man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. So they come down from the mountain, from in some ways the apex of their experience to this point in following Jesus. And what they are immediately met with is a request from a despairing and despondent and discouraged father. And you'll see as the text continues, we're told what this affliction is that his son is dealing with. He's seized with an unclean spirit. So he has a demon that causes him to fall on the ground. It even shatters him, the father says, and he foams at the mouth. And it's a disease that we would normally call today, and even they had the context for this back in the first century of epilepsy. But it's noticeable for even our attention this morning that Luke, who is a doctor that knew about epilepsy, doesn't say that epilepsy is the ultimate thing going on here. He says it's ultimately a demonic action, doesn't he? And so once again, what you have in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ is the forces of evil getting ready to war against the king of kings. And some of you might know that the greatest sporting spectacle known to mankind is going on right now, the World Cup. <laughs> Maybe you've watched a game or two in the last week. And even if you know nothing about soccer, sometimes it's kind of moving to see what happens. At the beginning of the game, the starting 11 walk out from the tunnel. They line up at the front of the field horizontally, facing the crowd. The respective national anthems are sung forth with unusual patriotic fervor and passion. The starting 11 find their places on the field. A hush falls over the stadium waiting for the referee to blow his whistle and when he blows that whistle, a roar goes up because the battle has begun. And the spiritual squads of evil and good are lined up once again here in our text. Evil is facing the king of light and they seem to be winning already. Do you notice what the father says in the text as it continues in verse 40? I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they couldn't. Which if you've been following our series through Luke, you should be surprised that they can't do this. Because just at the beginning of the chapter, maybe only a week before this, 
They were casting out demons with power and authority that Christ had given them, commissioned to go heal people from their diseases, cast out and exercise demons. They come back to Jesus and say, look at all of this stuff that we're doing. And here at the bottom of a mountainside, they say, uh-oh, we can't get rid of this one. Maybe he's extra evil, unusually powerful, particularly difficult for righteousness. Well, you see what Jesus says in verse 41. The Father's request is met by the Savior's rebuke. O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? I do think that there's a sense in which he, he said this loud enough for the crowds to hear it, and it's a rebuke that goes to the whole. But uniquely, it's to the disciples. It's language taken right from Deuteronomy 32.5 where Moses rebukes God's covenant people for their ongoing unbelief that led, of course, to their wilderness wanderings and ultimately their exile from the promised land. And he takes up that very same language and directs it to the disciples as, how long am I to be with you? How long am I going to put up with you? So there's strength in his rebuke. Isn't it? You know, we find out from the other gospel writers with more fullness than Luke shows is that the problem of the disciples in this moment was they didn't believe. They had a lack of faith. If you go home later today and turn to Mark chapter 9, you'd see it really uniquely in that text. Jesus says, this kind of demon can only be driven out by prayer and fasting. Two practices that exemplify faith, don't they? Dependence upon Christ. And it is even, it should be, something of a warning to us as a church body for how often do we try to minister in our own strength. They'd come back from successful exercising of demons. Maybe they had had such success that now they thought they could just do it without the Savior's power, without dependence upon his authority. And then they come across this one they can't get rid of and they don't know what to do. And Jesus says it's because you don't believe. How often might we be ministering? How often might you be serving? How often might you be leading out of your own strength and wisdom, not dependence upon the Savior's power? But you'll see, of course, with Christ, uh, rebuke is not the end of it. He says with compassion, bring your son here. So the son is on his way to Jesus. You see in verse 42, as the text continues, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. Satan's never going to give up, is he, until the very end? He doesn't give up easily in his work of accusation and oppression and even possession of people who might be coming to the kingdom of light. But he can't stand against Christ, can he? And even the disciples' failure doesn't defeat Christ's power, does it? For you'll see even in verse 42 as it ends, Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit, healed the boy, and gave him back to his father. So the request brings the Savior's rebuke, and results in a restoration of a family. I want you, especially if you're in here today as a parent, to find something of tenderness and meaning in this passage for you as you relate to your kids. Do you bring your children to Christ? Do you come to Christ in some ways at, at your wit's end, saying, we have tried everything with this child. Only you can do it. Only you can restore what is broken. And you can be sure that Christ has given you the blessing of children. That he loves little children. He can do only what he can do. And I know some of you might even be in here this morning and say, well, I've done that for decades long. And he has not yet restored a relationship. 
the exhortation is to bring him again. For Christ is full of mercy and compassion to those who depend upon him. So everyone, you'll see in verse 43, is astonished at God's majesty. Even as the text continues into the next scene, they're all reveling and marveling at the greatness of what Jesus is doing. And this gives rise, this gives context to the next failure of the disciples, which is a failure of understanding. For notice what Jesus says in verse 44. Let these words sink into your ears. About 10 days ago, I was in Atlanta for our denomination's general assembly. And I had gotten the rental car, went from the airport into downtown. And I tend to be overconfident with my navigation skills. And so I took a route that I thought was going to be right. And soon, of course, came into one-way streets that would no, in no way let me get to my destination. So I pulled out the phone and pulled out the GPS app. And Google said I needed to have a course correction to where I was going. And have you noticed how often Jesus has to correct his disciples' course of direction? And oftentimes that course correction comes after this kind of display of his power, this display of his majesty. Everyone's excited about what Jesus is doing. And now Jesus stunningly says, let this sink into your ears. And that's a profound way of introducing the teaching of Christ, isn't it? You know, sometimes before a sermon we have the scripture reading, I'll say something like, let's hear now as God speaks to us through his word. Or other pastors and preachers will say something similar. But what about let this sink? into your ears. And don't you want to know the tone of that introduction? Was it in frustration? Let this sink into your ears. He said something like it before. Was it with deliberation? Let this sink into your ears. Like a boulder falling through water. So is this truth to sink into our ears? What does he say? The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. Now, it's kind of like what we would have seen earlier in the chapter. If you look back at verse 22, last time Jesus said something like this. He said, the Son of Man is going to suffer, be rejected. He's going to be killed. He's going to be raised. And here's the next wrinkle on the messianic mission as he brings his disciples into a deeper understanding of why he came. What he's going to do is he's going to be betrayed. Now, kids, I want you to think about how shocking that would have been to Jesus' disciples. Their understanding of the Messiah was it was going to be a mission of power, strength, and victory. And he's just displayed it, hasn't he? Out goes the demon they couldn't heal, and they think this is a shadow. This is a picture of the Roman Empire being thrown away, cast aside by our victorious, long-expected king. And then Jesus says, let this sink into your ears. I'm about to be betrayed. Don't you think they would have been shocked? Don't you think they would have been Stunned? That's not our anticipation, expectation of what the Messiah would do. So surprising, is it? Notice what they don't want to do in verse 45 at the end. They're afraid to ask him about this saying. The students, you might have had something like this happen in school before. You know, a teacher's on about a certain lesson in the classroom. For me, it was always calculus or related math courses in high school. You want to ask the question, but you've been in the class long enough that you should know it by now, so you don't ask the question lest you be embarrassed. The disciples don't want to do it either. And you even see, if you just look back up in verse 45, why not? They did not understand this saying. It was concealed from them so they might not perceive it. Luke amplifies their misunderstanding with three simple phrases. They didn't understand it. It was concealed from them. 
that they might not perceive it. And we don't know exactly what to say about that purpose clause, so that. I think it does speak to divine ordination. Christ was not willing to bring them into the fullness of his mission at this point. And you'll trace that out. He's he's unfolding it slowly but surely in his disciples' life, but we're going to find out, Lord willing, we'll get there in months to come at the end of this gospel. The disciples never truly get it until Jesus has been raised from the dead. Along the way, they had all these signs. They just couldn't get it. They couldn't understand it. And so Jesus, in part, is not willing to give insight into their ignorance because they just aren't ready for it, once again, we see. And they've failed in their understanding. And so often, isn't it true that even our own life in Christ, we need to be reminded about the centrality of suffering and sacrifice in Christ's life, in the Christian life, so often being reminded of the centrality of the cross of Christ, in our very faith, for that is what distinguishes us. We praise a God who died and rose again three days later, is living and ruling and reigning at the right hand of God. And do you want to know how you might even assess if a church is growing in their understanding of truth? I think we could say in light of this passage, there's an increasing concentration and delight in the suffering sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So they've failed, haven't they, in their faith and in their understanding And next they fail in their humility. For notice verse 46. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. Now we like to have these arguments, don't we? Even in popular culture, which president is the greatest? Which diet is the greatest for my body? Which NBA player is the best in history? Which quarterback is the best in NFL history? Sadly, you get a bunch of pastors and ministers together. It won't take long for someone to start talking about who's the greatest theologian. Who's the greatest preacher? I mean, imagine if you came into an elder meeting on a Thursday night here at Redeemer and you saw the agenda, you saw the docket, and the first bullet point said, debate about the greatest ruling elder. It would seem so out of place, wouldn't it? Christian people arguing about who gets to be the greatest in God's kingdom. But maybe we can cut the disciples some slack and say, well, it's somewhat understandable. They're chosen and called by Christ. They're uniquely empowered by the Spirit to be the 12 apostles. Surely one of them is going to be the greatest. Well, look what Jesus says in verse 49. Knowing their hearts, he says, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you is also the one who is great. And you're not going to understand exactly what Jesus is after with pulling this child to his side if you don't understand something about Jewish culture related to children at this time, especially rabbis and teachers of the law. They said it's only when a child turns the age of 12 that we're to give our attention to him. And that's him, because it wasn't her. Attention to the boys. And then even the uh, the ancient commentators would say, chattering with children will bring a man to ruin, so don't do it. There was, I think, a covenantal love within God's people, but there was just pushing to the side until they can start to participate in ministry, participate in learning, until they actually can contribute something significant to the conversation. And Jesus then pulls this child to the side and says, he who loves this one, who is the lowest, is not only the greatest in the kingdom, but actually receives me and the Father who sent me. True greatness is found in humility. True greatness is found in service that stoops to those that people, even in the church, tend to forget. 
So what Jesus is speaking out against here, even in our modern context, is a tendency among God's people, even church members, church leaders, desire places of prominence, power in the church. And I don't think it's any stretch of an application to say in light of this text, if you wanted to test out a church's humility, just see if they have a flood of volunteers in their children's ministry. For isn't it true that even in evangelical churches today that children can get the short shrift in the ministry of the church just like they did all the way back in the first century? No, I'm going to serve in the church, but it's in this place of power. It's in this place of prominence. Not in this area that is so often difficult and full of needing patience and perseverance. So let us even receive that as exhortation. For we, of course, as a church body, confess God's covenant grace and promises to children. So there's a failure, isn't there? Of faith. There's a failure of understanding. There's a failure, failure of humility. And then finally, we see in verse 49 through 50, a failure of acceptance. Because John now speaks up for the disciples And he says, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we try to stop him because he does not follow with us. And it's it's noticeable what he doesn't say at the end of the verse. We try to stop him because he doesn't follow you. It's he doesn't follow us. This kind of early cliquishness in God's covenant community. We might even say in more modern language, tribalism, striking God's people. And don't you know that that is very much part of parcel of our church culture today, just broadly speaking, how much tribalism can war against unity in the church, acceptance of those that God has redeemed, because consider how often it just shows up in different ways. There can be ethnic tribalism, can't there? Black and white. There can be gender tribalism, male and female, generational tribalism, old versus young, community tribalism, suburban versus urban. There can be liturgical tribalism, contemporary versus traditional, theological tribalism. There can be, of course, political tribalism, Democrat versus Republican or something else. Christ here is saying, notice verse 50, do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. And it needs to come to us in a chapter that has been very clear on a needful exactness for understanding who Jesus is, that he's now commending wise broadness in welcoming others who sincerely claim the name of Christ. But maybe it's not even tribalism with the disciples at this moment. Maybe it's something more simple like resentment. Because you see what frames our text? At the beginning, they can't cast out a demon. At the end, someone else can. Stop it, is what they say. Insecurity, doesn't it often breed some type of implacability towards others? Well, that church is growing. That preacher is successful. That ministry is thriving. And God help us for so often saying, well, it's probably because they're doing something wrong. There's There's a wide acceptance to this narrow way, isn't there? In Christ Jesus. Failures of his people. Failures of faith, understanding, unity, and acceptance. In 1952, Queen Elizabeth sat for her royal portrait. She was painted, and that painting subsequently was hidden for 60 years because it was a painting that was deemed to depict her with too long of a neck. It didn't strike the right pose. It didn't emphasize the right size. 
And maybe you've done something similar even with your own life. You know, someone takes a picture on a camera, someone takes a picture on your phone, maybe you do yourself, and then you look at it and say, mm, I'm going to delete that one. That one really doesn't put me in the best light. Or maybe you just don't like taking pictures of yourself because you know what you look like and you don't want to look at yourself. <laughs> do you think that any of the disciples might have wanted one of these scenes to be gone from God's holy word? It depicts them with such failure, doesn't it? but it's recorded for our instruction and usefulness, for which one of us doesn't see something of ourselves in these passages. So as we begin to close, I just want to point out a couple things that we need to look at and learn from these snapshots of the disciples' failures. The first of which is it needs to warn us against the danger of self-interest among God's people. Because what is it that we might say that is centrally driving all these failures? Surely at a certain level we can say it's self-interest that leads them to ministerial inability, theological misunderstanding, dissension, and division. You know, as I was studying this text this week, every single scene could have been my life, sadly maybe even my life this week, full of failures, shortcomings, and disappointment. Do you know how common self-interest is even in the church? and how self-interest can so easily rob the church from growth in Christ and simple delight in the Savior. We dare not think that we look at these snapshots and say, well, that's them, and we're much better off today. Well, surely we are better off in the fullness of revelation, but we so stumble and fall, do we not, into self-interest. So what does Christ do with his disciples' failures? Does he forsake them? Does he forget them? So he needs to warn us about the danger of self-interest in God's people, but also awaken us to the majesty of patience in God's Son. What's the central question he gives in that first scene of verse 41? How long am I to be with you? How long am I, you chosen twelve, to bear with you? And do you see what we find out in the rest of the Bible? As long as it takes to bring them salvation, as long as it takes to bring them into understanding and conformity to Jesus Christ. For those whom he has sincerely chosen, those whom he has sincerely called, he does not forsake them in the midst of ongoing failures. And why not? Because the good news is contained in our text in that simple declaration that needs to sink down into our ears once again of verse 44, the Son of Man was betrayed. Sons of men, handed over the Son of Man, and that is why he will not forsake you. In the perfection of obedience, he went to the cross to die in your place, the greatest act of humble service. Placed in the grave three days later, rose again victoriously, ruling and reigning from the Father's right hand. And what does he do? He fills us with his spirit, saying what? I will be with you until the end of the age. I will not forsake my people that so often fall short. I will not forget my people that are so often marked by shortcomings. I will use their weakness to show my strength. I will use their failures to show my majesty. Because, of course, ultimately, it's about his greatness, not our own. It's about his ability, in the midst of our inability, that Christ's kingdom is going to advance in this world. And, of course, it advances even through this gospel. So what does Christ do with the failures of his disciples? He does correct them but we're meant to be nourished 
and comforted today that he does not forsake them or forget them. He bears with us and remains with us even to the very end. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful that you are patient with us. That your kindness of forbearance is meant to lead us to repentance. So help us today, we pray, to know Jesus Christ. For those in here that don't know him, help them to see the true patience and mercy and grace that he offers. To welcome weak and weary sinners full of failures. To be with them and to bear with them until the end of the age when they receive the fullness of everlasting righteousness and rest at his right hand. So help us, we pray, to grow in our devotion unto you, in our exaltation and adoration of your Son. And we pray it in his name. Amen.